Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Jason Brownlee, the founder of a marketing consultancy called Colortext. I wanted to speak to Jason as he is a bit of a rare bird. He is a charismatic speaker who can take what would seem like tedious data sets and produce genuinely fascinating insights from them. Okay, okay. So, hi, Jason. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. It's uh, nearly the end of November. It's grey, it's rainy, and it's Manchester, so I feel right at home. Me too. I think I've got web fingers as well. I'm from your area and um, I'm in Cumbria right now and it's pretty similar. When, how long ago did you leave Manchester? Um, I left Manchester probably um, 97, something like that. Went down to London, um, previously working at Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, uh, which uh, many people remember fondly. And then I went down to be a research manager at KISS FM in London, which was a super exciting job and um, stayed there for another 10 years before moving back up north. And what uh, is that sort of, that's what took your, took you on your journey into being a uh, chief marketing officer It's going through the sort of research side of things and then... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've spent most of my career helping people understand how you drive um, growth for audiences and um, how you turn those audiences into revenue. So um, that's where most of my um, work has been. Um, and becoming a, a chief marketing officer is interesting because um, you start taking your own medicine. And um, that, can be, that can be a really interesting process where, um, you know, you always give people advice uh, in good faith and you look at the data and um, you figure out what you think is going on. Um, but not having to necessarily be the person to act upon it is, uh, is, is quite a different place to be. So when you start taking your own medicine, um, it's a completely different feeling. Well, this is exactly it because we're several steps down the ladder uh, from where you are because we are music suppliers for creative agencies who answer to the CMOs. So we're two steps away from ultimately the person who holds all of the risk for the money they're spending. And so you now presumably feel the weight of that risk. Um, yes, um, but um, it's, it is more fun and it's more satisfying, particularly when uh, you, uh, you see the fruits of all your work. But um, my first love will always be um, messing around with the data and uh, understanding what makes uh, consumers and audiences in particular tick. Good. Well, um, briefly, before we start looking at some interesting data that was relevant to us, because it's music-led, and I know you're a big music guy, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to get the elevator pitch for what you're doing with, have I said this right, Nuchido? Is that how you say it? Uh, Nuchido. Um, yeah, I, uh, my, my involvement with them um, is, is less than it was. Um, I, uh, I was an early stage investor. I helped them get up to launch. And uh, now I'm moving on and uh, I'm doing my own things at the moment back again where I was before. So um, still in close contact with uh, what the company's doing though. Um, but it's a fascinating project in an area which I knew very little about, which was um, the whole process of how people age. And um, I, I normally associate anti-aging with um, quackery <laughs> and um, Harry Potter, you know, Philosopher's Stone kind of um, um, stuff. Um, but there's actually a very thriving and growing scientific community, um, which I think calls themselves, I think is known generally as biogerontology 
which is understanding the mechanisms of aging um, better than we've ever done before. And um, I got involved with a company called Machido that had uh, developed a, a new way to boost um, a very important biomolecule called NAD. And they were doing it in uh, what I always thought about as a second generation um, method, which isn't just trying to pump people's bloodstreams full of chemicals to um, um, fill them up with uh, NAD. What they were doing instead was uh, learning how the body produced NAD for itself and um, um, figured out that uh, you, can, you can get the body to start reproducing as much NAD as it did when it was young. And that turns out to be a really good thing to do because a lot of the issues that we all suffer as we get older are to do with a drop in this very important molecule, NAD. So um, I was completely hooked on that story and uh, got involved um, on the ground floor and uh, had a great time. Yeah. And so uh, that's certainly where I came into contact with you because you did, I think, the same um, wonderfully tied together elevator pitch, then segueing into a big discussion about TV advertising where uh, I'm can't remember, but I think it may have descended into a bun fight between someone from AdSmart and someone from Peach Media, but that's just my skewed young person's memory. So, Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting uh, afternoon or morning um, from what I can recall. And um, what I tried to do was to um, um, take part and drive a conversation around digital marketing in particular. And... What I discovered as somebody coming from what you would call an established or traditional media background, radio stations, TV, but um, taking on board the role of a CMO for a company that was going to be very digitally, digitally led in its, uh, in its, in its marketing um, strategy, that um, huge cultural gulfs um, kind of separate people with uh, a broadcast or print understanding of how marketing works. And um, people who come from a marketing background where their first contact with the sport was um, through Facebook or through Google and AdSense and things like that. And um, I think um, what was interesting about the debate that we saw um, unfold before both of us in that that meeting was that um, these two cultures do bang together. And um, it's difficult for each side of that divide to understand how the other views the marketing world. And I don't know if you'd agree with that. I think where uh, I sit with it is that one thing about TV advertising in particular is that it's um, subject to uh, apocalyptic thinking in a way that we all tend towards. Is it the end of? Is something in decline? Is this going to go away forever? And in the music world, uh, this happens every 20 years. Oh, jazz is dead. Rock music was uh, dead. You know, when, when I was... About 18, 19, uh, 2010, 11, there was this big thing of, oh, no, it's all EDM now. Guitars are going the way of the dinosaur. And what happens is it becomes reintegrated into the landscape in a, in a different way, which is obviously what we all want. But yes, um, with regards to you know, your understanding of, like, let's say, digital marketing and traditional stuff like TV, print, radio, um, I don't know where you... I don't want to ask a broad question like, where do you see the future going? But I have a feeling that as, I, as, as, we, as we progress we'll start to see terms like digital marketing as relatively archaic or sounding quite old-fashioned because everything is going digital. And what we consider TV is being swallowed into that landscape through things like Netflix and that. The feel of the format will still exist. There'll still be a box in the corner of the room that gives you stuff. 
But um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's a free associate question. Where do you think it's going? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting um, area to talk about. Um, the fundamentals of television all rest on its format as a, as a device and the device and the role that the device plays in a house, basically in a, in a, in a, in a household's lifestyle. But also, it rests as a, an advertising medium on its ability to generate audience. People will always be drawn to big screens always and um, the impact that a big screen gives any kind of marketing communication is always significant and there are there are there are a lot of um, system one and system two kind of psychological factors at play um, that explain that but um, the content that gets delivered through two televisions and how it gets delivered is changing and um, I think um, one, one thing to bear in mind today is that all TVs that are sold are connected TVs. And um, in, in the world of advertising, that's quite exciting because what it allows broadcasters to do is to serve ads in a way that people from a digital marketing background are actually quite familiar with. Um, it's completely different um, to the way in which ads are delivered. On a, on a pre-roll scheduled basis on uh, linear normal telly uh, when everybody sees the same ad in the Coronation Street centre break. Um, if you're watching Coronation Street um, on um, ITV Hub, you probably aren't seeing everybody else's ads. You're probably seeing your ads. And that's going to change the way that um, um, advertising on telly happens and the way that it's traded and the way that it's planned. And um, culturally, um, I think the change is going to happen at the margins. And I think the toy, which is Beaver, broadcaster video on demand, is going to actually start becoming a bigger part of the whole TV landscape. And it's going to bring with it more of the digital marketing culture, which um, I think um, it is more native to a, a new generation of young marketers that have never worked for a local newspaper and, you know, never cut their teeth in telly. Yes, I am um, reminded of two things there. One is, of course, you know, you mentioned never worked for a local newspaper and we could talk for a lot longer about the changing landscape of journalism as well as everything else. I remember my brother telling me when he was in PR that something like the Wigan Reporter had four journalists, whereas Wigan Council had a PR team of 20 or it was something like that. You know, internal PR teams are taking the place of journalists. But on the TV thing and on the way things are going, new marketers and uh, BVOD, I think uh, it was referred to as there. I too often refer to Mad Men and I'm always reminded of um, in that the way they depicted the newfangled, you know, the new um, scary world of TV advertising. There was no TV department at one point and then that was the digital marketing thing that took over. On the where is it going, uh, one question is... Um, do you think we're going to see an end to the big blockbuster ad spot at some point in the near future? There's going to be, you know, no more I'm a celebrity ad break, uh, significant ad spend on one moment. Um, well, I, I've, I've actually got data um, on another screen over here in front of me, which I've been working on in the last few days. And this is for a very large advertiser uh, and a very famous brand that I can't obviously mention. But um, what that data tells me is that there's going to be a big change in the way that digital marketers view what they do and how they fit into the broader brand building landscape. 
which is where television itself has always kind of been. Um, I think what's interesting about the data that I'm looking at is that um, this particular advertiser has, has managed to garner literally millions of views for some of the content that they've created um, that's going out on social and YouTube and places like that. But we're also doing a, um, a, an upper funnel kind of brand metric study at the same time that looks at brand awareness, ad awareness, et cetera, et cetera. And the needle isn't really moving despite these big, big numbers with millions on the back of them. Um, nothing's really moving the needle um, out there in the real world, oddly. However, there is another um, famous brand which has just launched a TV campaign and has gone from zero to hero in the space of a week. Now, if that doesn't show you the difference between the impact that television advertising can make relative to the, you know, the telephone number kind of views and impressions that we're used to getting in digital marketing, I don't think anything else will. And that, that kind of picture is not an unusual one. I just don't think enough people from both sides of the divide see the data. Um, I think that's going to be... I think that's going to be a, a key feature of how the marketing landscape will develop, where um, the, 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 the role that TV plays and, you know, particularly around um, the way that we use organic, meet, organic reach on social, I, I, think, I think organic's time is over and it's getting harder to do. And like the amount of effort as a CMO that I put into content creation was just crazy. Um, Frankly, it's a lot easier to make ads. And if they work really well, why wouldn't you do that? So I think that's, that's a picture that's going to develop for the upper funnel brand metrics. But where digital really delivers is on response. And all of the lessons that people um, have learned about direct response from way back when we, when we, when we relied on telephone numbers and um, you know, give you some great conceptual tools to understand how... Um, web response particularly uh, works and conversion metrics and how you, you know, how you um, create a, um, a, a, a marketing strategy, strategy to support brands which natively rely on web response. You know, you can look at brands like comparethemarket.com or Pretty Little Thing and ASOS. Um, those businesses don't work if people do not visit their websites. So um, they kind of get caught into a direct response model by default, but that can have a very short-term series of effects where you think of like a classroom of children. And if you wanted a response from those kids, put a whole load of Mars bars on the table and watch them disappear. For 15 minutes, all those kids will be running around like loons because of the sugar boost. But that peak goes up like a firework and it comes down just as quickly. And ad short-term ad response um, uh, mechanics work just like that in marketing. What we're learning from other work that we're doing, where we're measuring the, the longer-term kind of impact, particularly where you're using TV to generate ad response, is you get this stepwise cumulative increase in um, brand awareness and uh, brand salience, which very much echoes what Binet and Field very famously talked about in the long and the short of it, where you've got that very famous graph that they put out, where you've got um, the short-term sore edge kind of peaks of um, short-term response, but you've got this patient kind of escalator of growing brand power um, over time. 
And many brands are going to have to learn how to get their budget levels right to get both of those things working together and singing. Because the evidence that I'm seeing now, um, and people are spending a lot of money to understand this now, which is really interesting, is that you've got to have both sides of that picture properly, you know, properly funded and properly understood at a strategic marketing level. It's funny on the brand building versus sales activation question, which I've only just become aware of in like the last couple of months, really. Um, as you know, someone who's relatively new to the industry, um, my sense is there's always an internal debate uh, about which one's actually useful. So you know, you have your in all businesses, you have your hardcore sales activation types who just want to go out and reach out and ring people up and just you know, like I'm not talking about big brands, I'm talking about like sort of SMEs here. It's like that's all. That's the only way it works is going straight to people. And then you've got your brand builders who are like, no, that's that's too hands on. You've got to have a long term more backed off strategy that keeps the lights on in your customer's mind. They always know you're there. And it was really great to finally see, and you know, all marketers knew this already before I read it, God, that uh, there was, you know, a relationship between the two and trying to balance those is actually, that's the real challenge. Yeah. And I think the, um, I think the reassurance that anyone might be looking for about what happens when you get this right is, um, is illustrated by a, uh, a project I did with um, a company called Adelizer, who I believe that you know quite well. And those guys are brilliant at measuring web response. But we worked on, on, on a project with those guys. And what we were looking at was um, before TV was um, used by a particular brand, which was online only and all of its transactions and revenue were driven through its website. Um, we could measure the base level of web traffic before any TV broke. And then you get a six, six week, you know, three months, six weeks to three month burst of um, TV. And then the TV stopped. And when the TV stopped, obviously, first of all, we got a doubling in web traffic while the TV was on. You know, 52% of the traffic to this website would not have occurred if it wasn't for the TV campaign, which I think is a startling kind of um, affirmation of TV's power mm. um, as a traditional medium. Um, but once the TV had stopped, the traffic obviously goes down again, but it doesn't go down to where it was at the beginning of the process. It, it settled down to a level that was 10% above the previous baseline traffic level. And then they did another three-month burst of TV. And after that, um, the traffic leveled down again, but it was 30% above its original kind of baseline traffic level. And so after six months of television where they're getting the responses that they need for the website, but they've done some great creative, which helps establish a brand in people's hearts and minds, they'd taken their web traffic to a place that was 30% above where it would have been otherwise. Now, that's the kind of result I think most brand um, owners and CMOs like me are looking for, you know, and, and it's figuring out how we do that every time. So you're always looking for three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah. And you end up going up the ladder like that uh, uh, into, into the heady heights of Nike and Coca-Cola. Absolutely. Um, did you want to ask me any questions about the music by any chance? Because um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glancing at it on this screen, I've like, but I'm just too interested in this. It's entirely up to you. This is your podcast. Oh, to be uh, to be deviating, but yes, let's get on to the stuff with Spotify. But first of all, I'll buttress it with you know you're a data guy, and I'm always interested in people who are quite statistically literate. 
uh, in a disclaimer about, uh, you know, I lived with a PhD student who was very hard on stats and stats are difficult to interpret um, and difficult to derive meaning from, you know, they don't just show you an answer. It's like a cross section. What's your, just briefly with, with, with looking at data, what do you think the dangers are for laymen like me who just see curves and don't know what to make of it? Um, I don't think the danger is the people that, you know, aren't particularly data literate. I think a little knowledge is the most dangerous thing. And the biggest issue that I see with all data, um, particularly when it's deployed on social media for um, partisan political purposes, particularly, is that you can get any story you want out of data. And I think being misled because you want a particular story to emerge is the greatest danger. And I've got a little story on this. Um, I'm a, I'm a white, middle-class, educated guy, lived in London for a long time, so guess which way I voted for, um, um, you know, uh, stay in or leave, you know, remain or leave Europe. Well, obviously, in the referendum, I voted remain, like everybody else of my class, you know, quite frankly. Um, and I've always prided myself on being quite an objective, research-orientated data person. So the, the, the shock I got, on um, June, whatever it was, um, yeah, um, in, in 2016, was profound. It, it, it went straight to my core. I was ashamed, quite frankly, that I called it so badly. I was more shocked that there were more people that disagreed with my position than actually agreed with it. That was the, that was the biggest kind of shock. And when I went back and looked at the data I've been using to form my impression of what was going to happen and what was the right thing to happen. I'd got those two things mixed up and I'd stopped being objective. I was looking at data with the story I wanted to get from it. And you know what? It was very easy to make the data tell that story. That was the, that was the real danger. So this is something that happens to everybody. And um, it, is, it is the hardest part of being an analyst um, to, to, to go back and say, okay, um, is correlation causation? Am I just seeing the pictures I want to see? Is there another perspective or interpretation with this data? And have I got all the information I need to be clear about what's going on? Yeah, it's the classic uh, maxim, isn't it? You can, if you torture the data long enough, it'll tell you anything. It, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and on that note, let's look at Spotify. So, what drew me to this conversation was you published something on LinkedIn that was to do with. Spotify trends this year and last year. And I'm going to share the screen so that we can all refer to what we're looking at. Um, so we've got this. You can see that, right? Absolutely, yeah. So first of all, just, you know, obviously we've got some copy there, but just tell us what we're looking at and why it matters. Okay, so what, what you're looking at was basically me trying to scratch a couple of different itches about what was going on during lockdown. And um, I've, I've worked with the fabulous people at Radio Monitor, which is uh, it's a very long and well-established UK company. And they're very well known in the radio industry, which is obviously how I got to first um, meet these guys. And what they do is basically collect a data set of every record that gets played by every radio station pretty much all around the world. Mm -hmm. And they collate those numbers and they provide them back to the record companies and to the radio stations so they can figure out their marketing strategies and they can figure out their competitor, um, you know, what their competitors are doing and what their own strategy ought to be. But 
within all of this data, they've also got access to Spotify um, streams, which is really interesting because the difference between the Spotify data and the radio station data is that the radio station data represents what um, the program directors are thinking and doing. You know, they're, they're putting out records that get played, but the Spotify data is what the punters are doing. This is what people are actually choosing to listen to rather than what they are given to listen to. And um, the first thing I wanted to do, after hearing a few things on the, on the grapevine from some of the record companies particularly, was that lockdown was having a, um, an effect on music streaming that we didn't really predict. And you can see from this chart, if you look where, at the top chart where it says number 10, um, that's around about the beginning of March. Yeah, 1st of March. Um, so the 10th week thereabout of, um, uh, of the year. And the orange line is 2020. And the purple line, the darker line, is 2019. And at that point in time, lockdown really begins to, you know, to bite um, from the COVID crisis. And this is where the two lines begin to diverge. And as everyone had to stay at home um, during the lockdown one period, um, music listening on Spotify, particularly to the, well, in this case, specifically to the top 200 songs played, um, fell. It's fallen by quite a lot. And um, over the year, um, I've, I've calculated so far that um, streaming's down at least 6% on Spotify relative to um, last year. And um, the explanation, I think, is that um, something that we know in radio quite well is that radio, uh, music particularly um, relies on listening occasions or opportunities to listen. And one of the main opportunities to listen when you're engaged in a primary task, but it's not the kind of task that you can do anything particularly serious uh, in, is commuting. And um, many people choose to listen to music while they're commuting uh, particularly if they're young, when they're going to college or, you know, the first jobs and stuff like that. And that simply wasn't happening. And because that primary task was missing, um, the, the little kind of niche in the, in the ecosphere for, or one of the little niches uh, in the ecosphere, the media ecosphere for music streaming, had suddenly just gone. The meteor had hit it and um, it wasn't happening anymore. So instead, yeah, we're seeing people listening more at home. But when you're at home, you've got a whole bunch of other things that you can get engaged with, you know, principally screens very often as well. So I think there's been a big disruption to lifestyle patterns during lockdown. And that's really affected the way people uh, listen to music because of their availability to listen to music and not have anything else to do instead. So that is really uh, fascinating insofar as addressing the uh, the issue of uh, something you would predict, you know, is seeming obvious. Oh, well, everyone's at home. They're going to listen to more music. Uh, and actually not going to work robbed people of two primary opportunities for listening in that day. So that's really interesting. And I did not see that coming. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm seeing... Uh, in the data here, and this is why I was giving the disclaimer about just looking at curves and trying to derive meaning, uh, what looked like, you know, a bit of a delay, but the same shape. You've got a peak here, you've got a peak there, you've got a dip here and a dip in the orange line and then a peak in purple and afterwards a peak in the orange. Do you know what accounts for the, the similarity? Why is it going up and down with the weeks? 
Um, now, that's an interesting question, and it's a relatively simple one to ask, but it can be a hard one to answer. Okay. Because there's going to be a whole bunch of what we would call multivariate um, influences on people listening to music. So it can be affected by release schedules, for instance, you know, so when record companies are putting out new music, um, that can, you know, they, they might have a spring kind of schedule, but, you know, uh, whether um, their acts go really stellar or not isn't really something they can determine, you know, precisely. So, you know, you might get patterns in the year where, you know, a lot of releases happen and that will stimulate um, listening on its own. Um, but other things like the weather even can, you know, can change it. So you, you, you'd expect, you know, like a nice warm spring, you know, if you, if everyone knows that, you know, when you're about to do your GCSEs, the weather gets nice again, you know? Um, so you, you normally get warm weather starting at certain parts of the year and that can have an effect on people doing things outside, having parties or just wanting to, you know, have a soundtrack for the summer starting. But if that's delayed by two weeks because of, you know, crap spring weather, you might see that effect in the data as well. I mean, you're looking at the chart, the biggest spike that you see is Christmas right at the end of the, uh, of the calendar year there. So um, I'm going to be watching how that Christmas spike develops um, over the next few weeks because we, we're not going to have a normal Christmas. And so what does that mean for the way that people create, you know, use music to create mood and create atmosphere in a lockdown situation. Well, that was that's interesting actually because I was on the precipice of asking what I mean. We know what that big spike is at the end of the year. We know what happens then. The question was going to be what accounts for that spike. And I'm guessing, and this is why again, disclaimer: is an idiot trying to draw conclusions already from looking at shapes. Um, that everyone's mingling, having parties, having gatherings, and you stick a playlist on in the background. And so I'll be interested. Um, to see uh, if with fewer household gatherings, potentially zero or one household gatherings this year, what happens to that spike as well. Um, and so another thing on the lower graph I was going to uh, ask you about, in fact, I am going to ask you about, here I am doing it, uh, is if there's anything we can derive from... Uh, you know, anomalous spikes in genre trends like hip-hop, which I thought was the dominant thing, it turns out, on Spotify, it's pop. But hip-hop has this huge uplift this year over last year. Is there anything we can draw from that? Um, yeah, and I think to explain that, um, I think just capping off what we were talking about around the Christmas spike is a good, good lead into this because what we're looking at here is data for the 200 most requested songs on Spotify. And the top 200 songs are generally um, the songs that are um, in the ether right now that are usually charting and that are getting a lot of airplay and they're usually new, okay? That's it's generally new music that drives um, the top 200 um, um, list as we see it. What's different at Christmas is that... Um, you start to see songs being played that everybody knows, that everybody's familiar with, and suddenly old songs start to really peak. And that's what we're seeing at Christmas, where people have got shared references to what a great Christmas song ought to sound like and feel like, and it's going on the playlists, as you, as you point out, and that's, what, that's what's moving old music right to the top of the, uh, the top 200. For the rest of the year, though, 
it's quite different. And marketing schedules at um, record companies play a big role in how, how this works. But so do social media as well. So I, I'm pretty sure if we look in the data, we'll see Fleetwood Mac in there, um, which wouldn't have happened without that TikTok moment of the guy uh, with the ocean spray on a skateboard or whatever he's doing, you know, somewhere in California. So there's a lot of stuff coming in from left field that wasn't around last year. TikTok wasn't really having a big impact in 2019. But my goodness me, it's the one kind of platform that the record companies tell me that they are most interested in understanding the value of as a marketing tool right now. Now, that all feeds back into what's going on in the bottom chart, which is genres. And um, I have to be clear uh, for you here, um, deciding what genre to tag any song with is a difficult thing to do. And actually, Spotify doesn't really do that. We don't get that data from Spotify. This is something that we've had to make up ourselves. And the way that we had to do that was after years of collecting um, um, lists of, um, of artists that people have manually um, tagged with, you know, I think David Bowie's alternative or I think David Bowie's indie. Um, we, we had the multiple lists of like thousands and thousands of artists um, with a lot of duplication between them. And what was interesting about that is because they've all been done by people at record companies, radio stations, music TV channels, all the, play, all the places and people that I work with, is that none of them entirely agree, but there's a certain degree of overlap. So we, we basically built um, an algorithmic approach to merging all of those different lists and letting the lists argue amongst themselves until a consensus algorithmically emerged about what record goes in which, or which artist goes in which genre. And Pop's the biggest. It always has been. And um, Pop's the biggest component of um, music radio. And as it turns out, it's the biggest component of what people are choosing to listen to on Spotify, which I think is super interesting. But it has fallen as a, as a, as a proportion of overall um, listening on the platform in 2020. And a lot of that slack seems to have been taken up by hip-hop and rap. And there are some interesting trends going on here. So when we look at the biggest pop acts of, on Spotify last year, we've got Billie Eilish, who managed to generate just about 250 million. That's a quarter of a billion streams across 2020. Um, this year, um, her streams are down about 50%. Okay. Um, and a lot of that's going to do with, you know, release schedules and stuff. But with some of the really big acts that were producing huge streaming numbers in pop, particularly last year, are not delivering at all this year. And we're not seeing new material from new acts coming through, taking their place. Now, again, that might be a supply issue rather than a demand issue. It's been very difficult for record companies to create new products in the lockdown environment. But in terms of, um, you know, singer-songwriters is really interesting as well. Louis Capaldi is actually the biggest artist on Spotify last year and this year. But last year, he had 330 million streams, enormous number. Um, but this year, down 48%. And Ed Sheeran's completely disappeared. He was the second biggest singer-songwriter from last year. But his streams are really, really way down too. So it's been left to hip hop and rap to um, pull in the um, 
pulling the numbers. And what's different about this genre compared to last year is that there just seems to be this explosion of talent that's just come through and generating huge numbers on YouTube, which is a super important platform for this particular genre because the visuals are super important to uh, hip-hop. Videos have always been key for this genre. Um, but we're seeing some great artists like um, uh, Lil Has X, H, H, D Block Europe, Travis Scott. Um, none of them last year breaking through 100 million plays in this genre, but this year, Pop Smoke, absolutely enormous. Pop Smoke broke out of nowhere and has posted 156 million plays in 2020 so far. We're not even over yet. I think we, we, he might even hit 200 if he's lucky. But we've got other gross acts like uh, Roddy Rich, St. John, KSI, 24 Golden and Simba. These guys were posting no, no streams at all practically last year. So these are the guys that are filled in the gap. Fascinating picture. Not sure why it's happening yet. Okay. Well, there's, um, but we'll probably have to have a, a catch up next year and see where it's gone. But there's one more question I've got for you. And I don't know if it's an area of expertise for you, but there's an internal debate in this office about in 2020 and beyond what it takes to break an artist. And, you know, there's half of the, uh, I'm interested in your take as a radio person, uh, half of the, you know, debate is, oh, just get them on Radio 1 and then it all snowballs from there. And then the other half is, no, no, you need a multi-channel, you know, loads of touch points and, you know, TikTok would fold into that. What, what do you think, what does it take to break an artist? Again, a really interesting question. Easily put, hard to answer. Um, I think what... I think the issue about breaking artists these days is not so much breaking them in the first, first sense, because you can actually use a brute force approach where with a big enough marketing, marketing budget, you can, you can break any really sufficiently talented, talented artist. But the record companies are really shy about putting that kind of like um, investment or bet on individual artists these days. The reason being it's super hard to establish an artist, not just break them, but establish them because you haven't got the, um, you know, the album format, for instance, through which to market them and to generate big revenues. You don't have the singles chart that works in the same way that it used to. And you haven't got this limited supply of music, which made it so much easier in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, the entire way in which we consume music kind of militates against the ability to really grow and act from an acorn into a tree. I think that is what's making it so difficult to break artists because the barriers to entry into um, the world now, if you're a musician, musician, are very, very low. What's hard is to get you to stand out and to stay stood out when there's so much choice out there. I mean, if you look at um, Radio 6 Music, it's really interesting, actually. If you look at their playlist, since that station started, and I'm an indie fan, I come from Manchester, you know, so obviously, yeah, um, you look at that, 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 that station, they, they, most of, 80% of their output is records which are no more than three months old, okay? So they're playing new music maybe all the time, interlaced with classics, great classics, and the classics are like 30, 40 years old. But the new stuff is brand new. And once it's not new, where does it go? You know, it's gone. They're not playing those records again until they're much, much older. So that kind of like 
is, a, is an interesting sort of um, parallel with what's going on, um, on, on on music streaming generally, where it's, it's easy to put a record out there, but it's hard to break through and it's even harder to stay big. Well, as expected, uh, fascinating discussion. And I think we'll, we'll have to pick it up next year and see, see where we're at. Uh, but uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? I don't think it is. It's just been really great to talk to you. And uh, I'm delighted to uh, have been invited. And um, I, uh, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, catching up with your next episode and seeing who else you get to talk to. Well done. Well, let's, thank you. Let's see if we can do it in London next year, hey? Absolutely. That would be fun. We'll, we'll, we'll do it over a pint, perhaps, as well. That would be nice. 100%.